Hi, thanks for stopping by and welcome to Dharma Punks New York. We had a nice gathering on Sunday in mid Manhattan and looking forward to doing more gatherings in the post Labor Day season. If you'd like to hang out with us in person, we're doing a retreat at Garrison on September 1st. And all the info about our in-person meetings, uh, retreats, our events um, are on the dharmapunksnyc.com page. The link to the Tuesday evening class, you can also always get it there. The retreat is on Labor Day from September 1st through 5th. Yeah, hope you can consider joining us. If you are up for supporting the work of a Buddhist pastor, around 18 years ago when I started, I made a decision to do everything, the counseling and the teaching entirely by donation, not to charge anyone anything for my work. The um, PayPal button's on the dharmapunksnyc.com page, and the Venmo is dharmapunksnyc, and... Uh, there's also a Patreon site as well. In the Buddha's first noble truth, he notes the inevitability of painful events in life. He notes that there is inevitably going to be aging, sickness, death, uh, will be separated from the loved. We will be stuck at times with individuals that cause us a degree of stress, we'll have setbacks in terms of not getting what we want. I'd note that as a social species, probably the, we're most vulnerable to the experiences of separation and loss, because our brains are literally wired to respond to tribal events. And these painful experiences can be mitigated when we connect with other people and we do what's known as co-regulation, which means we find someone who's emotionally available, attentive, we disclose what's going on internally, what we're feeling. In that, we have a sense of being seen and understood. And when someone is either soothing or appreciative, our autonomic nervous system begins to link with the person we've connected with. So even if we're in great distress or sorrow, overwhelmed, if we connect and bond just through what's known as emotion contagion and um, uh, limbic co-regulation, our nervous systems begin to lock up sync to each other. And if someone is in a state where they feel safer or more secure, we can begin to uh, move from a sympathetic arousal, fear, uh, threat detection back into a healthier rest and digest state. So there's core neural pathways that support bonding as a way to regulate our emotions, 
Uh, the work of Matthew Lieberman and others postulate that this region called the dorsal anterior cingulate cortex is pretty devoted to monitor monitoring the health of our tribal affiliations. The more we feel interconnected positively with others, that region de-emphasizes physical stress. It allows us to focus on approach and reward emotions. On the other hand, if our affiliations aren't robust, then the dorsal anterior cingulate cortex focuses and highlights physical stress and emotional pain. So the amount that we feel comfortable or uncomfortable in our life is a direct feedback loop based on, or like a thermostat um, to our the health of our friendships, affiliations, bonds, status in the community, and so forth. Uh, Also, when we reconnect with another human being, it resolves the pain associated with separation and loss. And because for human beings, if you look at the four core types of anxiety, um, which is uh, annihilation, anxiety, social anxiety, separation anxiety, and decompensation. Most of these anxieties stem from concern about how uh, we appear to other people and whether we are accepted and um, connected with others. In connecting, we resolve so much of our emotional pain. The pain doesn't vanish, it settles. There's no end run around the pain of sickness, loss, uh, not getting what we want. But in bonding, we do mitigate healthily in a very long-lasting way, these uh, wounds. In the second noble truth, the Buddha says, however, despite having a healthy process of co-regulation, it's very tempting for us to try to escape pain altogether by seeking short-term highs after breakups, after setbacks, uh, going through uh, losing a job or um, having something that we've planned on fall through. Uh, It's tempting to seek the, uh, the amelioration, um, the soothing, warm feelings of alcohol, drugs, uh, food, binging, shopping. Uh, we might look for um, a sense of, of distraction through TV, gambling, pornography, shopping, dating apps, TikTok, uh, you name it. These are all dopaminergic short-term highs. They very quickly lead to the forward projection, forward projecting secretion from the nucleus cummins of dopamine, which is a the, the reward neurotransmitter of motivation, search, and desire. And so these, rather than connecting with others, it's tempting to use something that produces this short-term high that obliterates 
our loneliness, our disappointment, our frustrating, our fear, our, all the negative emotions associated with the inevitable disappointments of life. Um, some of us will choose healthier bypasses like exercise, staying busy, or, you know, just workaholism to a degree they'll, um, and exercise to be sure secretes anandamides and norepinephrine, which can make us feel good again, like dopamine for a short period of time. But then when it, uh, the secretions diminish, we're back where we started. Nothing has been alleviated. We're still suffering, we're still lonely, we're still angry, we're still uh, disconnected, and so on. Uh, for sure, work and just staying busy can distract us from the pain of setbacks, losses, uh, and so forth. But once again, we can only work or stay busy for so long. And then at night, alone in a bed, if we haven't connected with another human being and sought emotion co-regulation while well, we're subject to anxiety, dreams, and insomnia, and a sense of far greater loneliness. Uh, only connection resolves emotional pain in any meaningful way. Other routines simply postpone. It kicks the pain down the road, but it's still very much there. Um, Especially dopamine, those short-term highs of shopping and uh, dating apps and social media and text messaging and um, alcohol and so on and so forth. These were never meant to make us feel safe for any meaningful duration. And in fact, um, evolution uh, set it up so dopamine rewards would last for a very, very short term because uh, it was in our interest to, once it would, the dopamine would be secreted, we'd be encouraged to once again go out and hunt for food or shelter or tools. And so short-term rewards were very much in our evolutionary interest. The only real lasting uh, neural rewards are associated more so with serotonin, and that's from affiliation. Serotonin is, regulates our moods, creates a feeling of safety, creates a feeling of uh, calmness and rest in the body. And that is very much a long-lasting uh, uh, present synaptically, assuming that we have robust connections in our life. In the aftermath of seeking relief from any short-term pleasure, there's what's known as a symmetric decrease of dopamine, which means we, for a while, we experience above normal levels of dopamine, but then once it stops secreting, it goes below baseline. And now we're actually in a depressive state. And uh, we actually are subject to mood dysregulation. And that's why people who uh, become addicted to 
dopamine, uh, uh, exogenous dopamine sources like cocaine or um, other stimulants or gaming or thrill-seeking or TV, after a while, after a binge, even after food binging, the dopamine drops below normal levels and there's a following state of depression. It's very similar to the instability of bipolar disorder where people have too much dopamine being secreted and then a mirroring symmetric decrease. And it's it's actually a subject that is uh, worth exploring and finding out more about because uh, the mirroring symmetric decrease of dopamine is something we're all subjected to in our lives. If we become dependent on any source of soothing that is based on consuming or accumulating, even posting on social media for uh, to get likes or approval can lead to this depressive uh, follow-up. So any routine outside of connecting and disclosing is essentially what it could be referred to as a dead object that will fail us. Um, in the primary attachment stages, uh, roughly associated with six months to 18 months, of our first two years of life, uh, the core attachment years. There are patterns of countless interactions between an infant and a caregiver. And these patterns over time will establish how we seek uh, to respond to painful events in life. So a healthy secure bond between parents and infants involve four key characteristics. Parents who are reliably proximal, available, and provide a sense of safety in their proximity. Two, parents who understand the internal state of a infant. So they're attuned. And if a child's sad, they can, they can non-verbally communicate, oh, I see you're sad or I see you're overwhelmed, or I see you're hungry, and they respond appropriately. So the infant feels understood. And then when the infant is overwhelmed, a parent can soothe, they can lift, hold, cuddle, uh, they can convey safety and reassurance. And so the child's autonomic nervous system responds. And finally, um, caregivers that express delight, and that's This is very much at the heart of today's topic. Um, We all need from our earliest years of life through from cradle to grave, all of our life, we need individuals to express the light, which is someone who who brightens and smiles and seems happy to see us absolutely unconditionally without any regard to us doing anything to, to, uh, to motivate that expressed delight. It's a sheer sense of happiness in our existence. And expressed delight is vital 
to our sense of esteem and well-being, and it's vital to how we respond to challenging, difficult events in life. These core attachment um, qualities, availability, understanding, soothing, and expressed delight are very similar to the Buddhist Brahma, Brahma Viharas, which are the, uh, the abodes that the Buddha teaches about and the way that uh, the Buddha suggests we interact with each other. Uh, the first Brahma Vihara is metta, which is uh, unconditional friendliness, welcoming, uh, saying uh, a, uh, a welcoming demeanor. Karuna is a compassion for suffering, and mudita is a joyous appreciation for another's happiness, another's well-being. And upeka is someone who's emotionally balanced, who's non-reactive, who's consistent. So all of these characteristics significantly overlap with the clinical studies on what our core attachment needs are. They, they directly match up. Um, when we do get soothing, uh, someone who's uh, compassionate and expressed delight, we have the bedrocks of a secure base and healthy self-esteem. We begin to associate our sense of self with positive feelings. In fact, when a child very early on has a healthy bond with its parents where it feels seen and the parents express delight, when the child sees herself in a mirror, she begins to dance. She begins to um, express joy at her image. She, her body's relaxed there's a already an internal sense of being cared about and a secure base, which is a felt sense that people think she matters. And later, as an adult, when she thinks about herself, it'll evoke a backdrop of positive feelings in her body. She'll embrace opportunities. She'll feel confident even in the after setbacks. She'll trust in others to regulate her disappointment, the time she feels abandoned or rejected, and she will be far less likely to chase after these end runs around connection, the dead ends of chasing security through uh, consuming drugs, alcohol, food, shopping, pornography, um, social media, all that will not be a primary source of emotion regulation for her. When she feels overwhelmed in life, her first instinct or impulse will be to connect with people and disclose it. Um, unfortunately, in our culture, there's far too much stress on parents. And parents are so uh, forced to face the hurdles of just keeping a roof over their heads, food on the table, driving their kids to school, paying for education, 
going to doctor's appointments, taking kids to after-school programs, soccer practice, uh, making sure their kids do their homework, on and on and on, that many parents, including having to work hard to pay and keep their family uh, financially afloat, um, don't have the emotional resources to express delight at the child. What falls by the wayside during instrumental parenting, where the parents worry about just making sure that all of the family's basic needs are met, is that they don't take time to smile and express this sense of joy and unconditional welcoming when their child enters a room. And so over time, this lack of positive mirroring, the child begins to feel something's missing and quite can't quite pin down what it is. She'll feel a need in these early relationships to prove herself, to get her parents to smile, to be attentive. And over time, if there's consistent uh, misattunements, then the child will begin to blame herself for the parents' overwhelm, disinterest, uh, lack of attention. And there'll be internally this sense of something's broken in me. That's why I'm not getting the kind of connection that uh, I got maybe in my first year, but I'm not getting in my second year. And for sure, there was studies that show that in the child's second to third year of life, suddenly they're hearing the word no from their parents over a hundred times each day. And if the parent doesn't have the emotional bandwidth after all of those no's stop, don't do that, to pause, to look at the child and convey this sense of unconditional delight in the child, the child will be stuck in this kind of autonomic state of insecurity. And over the course of tens of thousands of interactions of the child's nervous system reaching out for safety and attention and soothing, if the nonverbal response is disinterest, it will become a lasting belief that other people will not be available to soothe us reliably. And we'll have to look for support and refuge from addictive substances or through routines outside of bonding. Uh, there'll be this predilection to what's called auto-regulation, trying to regulate emotions by oneself rather than through connecting. Um, we'll struggle with feelings of inadequacy, imposter syndrome, um, people with who don't have this, when they look at themselves in the mirror, it's not against a backdrop of positive feelings. Um, when they are observed, they feel vulnerable and they'll avoid situations where anything associated with their core sense of self could be rejected. So they might 
work very hard at jobs for other people, but when it comes to displaying their own art or uh, dancing in front of others or being creative in front of others, they'll struggle because unconsciously they'll expect disinterest. These are people who, uh, no matter what they do or accomplish in life, they don't really feel good about themselves because from the very beginning, there wasn't this reliable expressed delight that was conveyed to them from as early as one or two when they go into uh, a room where their caregivers were and there just wasn't this reliable pattern of the parents expressing joy. Um, and over time, without these positive feelings in the body being evoked by their sense of self, they'll become uh, vulnerable to negative self-talk. And they'll take setbacks in their life personally. When they go through a breakup or get fired from a job, they're liable to think, oh, uh, I'm, there's something wrong with me. I'll never find happiness. I'm doing something wrong. They fail to understand the global universal quality of all these experiences. They tend to take everything personally. So the Buddhist solution to rekindle this experience of expressed alike we seek from others is first, of course, to find what's known as Kalyanamita. Um, the Buddha said uh, in this Sambodhi Sutta, he said, if somebody asks you, what is the foundation for the spiritual path and awakening? He, you should answer, he says, one must have admirable friends. That is the prerequisite for the spiritual life. In the Upada Sutta, where uh, the Buddha is asked by Ananda, his uh, kind of his assistant, um, and Ananda asks, is it true that admirable friends are half of the spiritual path? And the Buddha says, no. They're the whole, they're the entirety, they're the foundation of this, the holy life. There is no holy or spiritual life, I should say, without wise, uh, reliable friends. Uh, in the Mita Sutta, the Buddha defines the kind of people that we should seek out, people, he says, that are reliable, that don't look down on us or judge us when we're experiencing distress, distress and who uh, will keep our secrets safe and will be available in times of need. Pro-tribal acts, I should note, they're not fast acting like uh, dopamine resources. If you, after a breakup, uh, get drunk or watch a lot of TV or go on a shopping binge or uh, sit around uh, uh, taking drugs or whatever, um, the emotional pain will be uh, will be obliterated for a while. It won't go away. It'll just be pushed uh, outside of your awareness and then it will return the next day uh, 
or even an hour later because dopamine doesn't last very long. Whereas the emotional bonds that uh, and the increase of serotonin and oxytocin that comes from uh, building our uh, a sense of community or friendships um, takes time. Uh, the Buddha says that karma uh, can appear quickly or it take or can take a long time, but you should focus on the karma that takes a long time. That's the one that will last longer. The famous uh, clinical psychologist, uh, John Haidt, um, H-A-I-D-T, in the happiness hypothesis book, I believe it was, noted that if you give, I don't remember what amount of money it was, something like $20 uh, to an individual and tell that you can tell that individual to spend it on themselves, or you can, with another group of people, say, give it to somebody else. And the people who are told to spend the $20 on themselves immediately will have a bump they'll, uh, in their mood. They'll feel good. They'll get something that they wanted. And it, the joy, the uplift, the sense of esteem will be kind of immediate. But if they, the people who are asked to give the $20 to someone, those people three months later will still feel an uplift in self-esteem, whereas the people who spend the $20 on themselves, who don't develop any affiliation, don't in any way connect with another human being, three months later won't even remember what they spent the money on, and they'll have absolutely no uptick in self-esteem. In Ed Diner and Martin Seligman's famous analysis of well-being, they found the the foundation is a, an array of close social connections. But what do we do in the times when no connections are available? Healing can also be uh, a foundation can be built through internalizing a corrective emotional image, a caring figure. In sometime in the early 80s, there was this theologian named Kaufman. I don't remember his first name, but um, he noticed um, a, core, a core relation between individuals' concept of God and uh, a secure attachment figure. And basically, the idea is that the protective functions of attachment um, that we seek from caregivers early on, those four characteristics of availability, understanding, soothing, and express delight is very often the exact same characteristics they will uh, have of their sense of what a God is. When you ask them, what is your God like? They'll say, my God is always available. He's always, or she's always with me. Um, my God is always taking care of me, understands my pain, so on and so forth. So they're describing an ideal caregiver. And like children who run to parents when they're scale, scared, very religious adults activate a sense of reconnecting with a safe figure by praying. Now, Buddhists 
is a non or Buddhism is a non-theistic spiritual path. It's not a religion. It doesn't uh, pretend to explain uh, where the universe came from. It proposes no healing or fundamental role of any god. Buddhists practice Buddha Nusati, uh, Deva Nusati. Uh, these are visualizing in our meditation at some point a unconditionally appreciative, wise, understanding figure that embodies, yes, all of the qualities of secure attachment. And so we can use images as a way to activate that sense of a secure base. And so after painful events in life, we can, in the absence of core interpersonal bonds, we can visualize figures that embody all the attributes that we really need from others, responsiveness, consistency, mirroring, and express the light. So in our practice tonight, we're actually going to be doing a, uh, a meditation that is geared towards using this ancient 2,500-year-old Buddhist meditation of visualizing uh, the image of protective figures. And we're going to be using it to uh, experience this core attachment needs we all have throughout all of our life. And then we're going to be actually using these attributes to um, send a sense of unconditional appreciation to parts of ourselves that might carry a lot of pain. So uh, anyway, that's tonight's talk. I hope something in there was uh, of some benefit. And what I'm going to do now is I'm going to lead a meditation on these strategies. So find a really comfortable comfortable seated position, and um, if you want, you can lie down, you can lean uh, or on a couch, lie down on a couch, sit in a comfortable chair. Again, these, this meditation is not about uh, trying to stay in a posture without moving. It's about activating a sense of, in, of ease and then visualizing a reparative internal figure. So when you found a comfortable position, close your eyes or look away from the screen and just look at something in the room around you that is relaxing. It could be a plant or a window or a, a piece of uh, an art or um, something that is not a screen.
and try to bring your awareness, reel it back into your body. Much of our day, we have uh, an attention that's constantly scanning the environment for threats or opportunities, neurocepting as it goes unconsciously, looking for anything that might affect our um, well-being. So when we've arrived at a place in our life where we're safe and where we are not vulnerable, rather than simply try to just assume that the body knows that, we inform the body that we're safe. And so we look at something that conveys safety or we bring our, we close our eyes and bring our attention to our internal experience. And so see if you can find either the sensation of breathing in and breathing out. That's the Buddha's most basic meditation instruction. Just know when we're breathing in, know when we're breathing out. See if you can find that sensation somewhere in your body and use your ability to influence your breath by relaxing around anything that feels tight around the breathing body, pulling back the shoulders and letting them drop, opening up the chest, softening the belly, just releasing any habitual tightness in the back of the neck. If you find a really soothing sensation in your body, just bring your attention to it and use the inhalation to focus in on this sense of ease and comfort. And then as you breathe out, try to spread, release, Saturate all of the body with this pleasant sensation. Releasing any tightness, allowing all the, the uh, limbs to fall away from the torso. Allowing yourself to sink into whatever is supporting your body, whether it's a chair or a cushion or a, a yoga mat or just allowing yourself to really release into
your sense of support. Allow the exhalations to be as long and smooth as they can. Try to release that tendency to focus attention on breathing in. Just focus on making the exhalation smooth and so we're not pushing out the breath, just slowly releasing it and just allow the body to breathe in. And there's nothing to be frustrated about when our attention wanders. In fact, it's so beneficial when we realize that. Every time we realize that we've been lured into this virtual reality of thoughts and speculation and memories and planning and fantasy and daydreaming. Every time we wake up, we're wiring in an alternate neural pathway allowing us to find peace and refuge in our present experience, a way out of the intrusive thoughts. Sometimes thoughts can be pleasant, but if we don't have a way to wake up from them and return to the refuge of just our bodies, our breath. And over time, our thoughts can snare us up into all kinds of stressful dead ends, ruminations. So it's to be celebrated every time we wake up. We're developing that skill of self-awareness, 
a way out of the dead end of dissociative mind wandering.
So imagine if you would like, you've climbed into a raft or a very comfortable boat and you're floating down a very serene river. You don't have to do anything. And there's a sense of complete safety. A calm breeze. The river is surrounded by a very relaxing backdrop of trees, nature. You don't have to do anything. You can just relax and let the river take you with the current and finally you arrive at a shoreline that's very easy quiet, serene, and as you come ashore, there's a seat for you and a seat for another figure that you've been waiting to connect with. This is a figure associated with nothing but attentiveness, someone who is interested a figure that cares about whatever experiences have left any emotional residue, a figure that is delighted to see you, a figure that's not intrusive, but just wants to be available. And you sit across by, not too far from the shore, from the river, I should say. Or this could be any 
location that you're in front of a being that transmits nothing but attentiveness, kindness, compassion, and delight in you. If you like, you can put a hand on your heart center or on the back of your neck. If it's difficult for you to visualize, just cultivate the sense of what it would be like. Remember someone who's you feel safe with, a friend who's always interested in that feeling of being with someone where you don't have to do anything to get their interest. You don't have to win their approval. You can relax. Just find what that feels like in your body to be with reliable, soothing, appreciative, caring figure. And now let that figure if they're still present in your visualization, just allow that figure to gently get up 
and offer the seat to a new figure. And this is a much younger child. And this child looks like you from one of your earliest memories, especially an image of yourself associated with a time where you felt unseen, alone, a time where perhaps expressed the light was not readily available. Just let your mind represent this part of yourself that holds all of the earliest pain of disappointment and loneliness and the part of us that holds those memories of being disconnected at school, shunned or awkward, And as you face this much younger image representing or this part of yourself, just transmit compassion, caring, especially a sense of delight. Not that this part of you has suffered, but delight that this part of you persevered. And transmitting this recognition that even the most awkward, pain, lonely parts of ourselves deserve nothing but someone. expressing appreciation, unconditional kindness. And so whenever you're ready, you can slowly begin to reorient to the world around you.